Also, do remember praying for it. It's in, it's in the bulletin from last week. We had it as right in there. But remember, Sean and Chris are right now. They're down there to witness to a great uncle who uh, is a Vietnam veteran. He flew either F-105s or F-104s with wild weasels. I'm not sure which version of that he flew. They, they flew them both at that time. But uh, he showed me some pictures of him back in that day. And uh, so... Um, They've had a burden for him, and so they flew down to witness to him. So we praying the Lord works on his heart, and the clarity of the gospel is spoken, and, and the Lord would bless in that situation. Anyhow, First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to go into chapter 5, and so we're going to be... Well, let me, let me read, then we'll get into this. Last week we started at verse 13. Let's start there. And then we'll come into chapter 5, just a couple of verses. We'll probably be in those first few verses of chapter 5 for... Um, a week or two, um, and not counting this week. Anyhow, verse 13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Remember, they had a confusion of what took place over some of the saints, even though this is a young church at this writing. Keep in mind, the church has only been going now for uh, uh, approximately a year when, when uh, this epistle has been written by Paul, he started it. He went over into Philippi, started the church in Philippi, very first church in Europe. From there, he heads down to Thessalonica. He knew this city was key. It's the capital of Macedonia. He is thrilled with what's going on there. But there was some misunderstanding from when he taught about things to come. We call that the doctrine of eschatology. And so they're confused because they thought they were going to see the Lord's return right there. Just like Paul often also believed he was likely to see it. And now we're 2,000 years removed from it. So he put some things back in order right now so they have clarity of understanding, especially with those who have already died. So he's addressing that issue. He said, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we do, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For we say unto you by the word of the Lord, this is by God's word here. Remember, this is part that was sort of hidden in the past, they saw the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of a kingdom, but there was much that the Lord hid from them that these mysteries are now revealed, such as the indwelling Christ, what happened on Calvary, the church age, the rapture. He says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So here's what's going to happen. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, we looked at that uh, a couple weeks ago. Every time the Lord shouted, basically in Scripture, three times there was always a resurrection that took place. With the voice of the arch, archangel, arch, archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive, when this takes place, those of us on the earth alive, this is what takes place, and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That establishes the doctrine of the rapture. Now look at verse 5. We now have a, 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 a Paul is going another direction, but still keeping it in, in context of the coming of the Lord. He says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need I write unto you. For, ye, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Because Paul was there teaching them. For when... They shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman uh, with child, and they shall not escape. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you. We thank you for your word. 
Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message tonight, Lord, as I, as I really teach more of your word this evening. I pray that you would control what I say, how I say it. May it be clear. May we understand your word, and, and Lord, help us to get grounded and, and have a, a, a clear understanding of this with what is going to take place as your word teaches us. So, Father, please bless. Lord, I do pray there's anyone here that has never truly been converted. Lord, I pray the gospel will be clear in their mind and they even this evening repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, last week we did look at, the, or a couple weeks ago, we did look at the rapture as Paul uh, described it here, what is going to take place when Christ returns. There's two, two parts to it. He's describing the rapture now, which means caught up. The, the two words taken means caught up. Up. We're going to be, or even a more literal translation instead of rapture, because that actually has different meanings, would be the word snatched away. It's going to be quickly. We see that also in 1 Corinthians in the, in the twinkling of an eye. It's an event that's going to happen very fast, where the dead in Christ shall rise first. Again, that's not God having to put things back together. That's God changing. All right? He's changing into a new body that's going to take place. That happens, and then we are gone. To meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so we, we looked at that last time. Now as we come into chapter 5, uh, um, Paul gets into what comes next. He starts with the word but. Um, again, this is letting us know he is contrasting to what he just said. He's going from believers now to unbelievers what's going to happen. You see the pronouns change. Now he's going to they, to them. He's dealing with unbelievers as compared to believers as to what's going to take place after we are gone. All right, so he's making a contrast now. Um, and for today, before we get into the day of the Lord, there's a lot that goes with it. There's three key phases here, and I'm going to get into those. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I, we've got two more weeks before we're going to be three more weeks from tonight before we're back in First Thessalonians with the revival. We have another preacher that following Wednesday, and then I'll be back here. So uh, before we dive into the day of the Lord, I want to cover in consecutive weeks. We have key words here, day of the Lord, thief in the night, as well as times and seasons. Um, and so we'll, we'll dive more into that. I'm going to go into uh, uh, really some of the events that are going to be taking place, the timing of the rapture with what is coming in the future according to the Bible. If you were to even turn into our, our, our church's doctrinal page on page number six under uh, the eschatology. Well, it's not says eschatology. I think it just says future events or Bible prophecy, something like that. Our position, of course, is, is a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial church. We need to understand what that means. It's what we believe. All right? We need to understand what that means and why we believe it. So we'll be covering some of that tonight because we're at the portion in Scripture where those doctrines are established. So we're going to be looking at. And we can see a lot of different things going on in the world right now. I mean, we can, the world has changed so much just in the last 10 years, the last 50 years, perhaps more so in the last 50 years than any other time in world history of 6,000 years. Certainly it's true for 120 years that there's never been an amount of change taking place. We're seeing knowledge increase, just explode. I mean, think, what, think how small the world all of a sudden has come with transportation. I mean, think where, how the advances all of a sudden that medical science have made. It's amazing. Technology. I mean, it's nothing. We're almost taking it for granted. We forget how far we have jumped with technology right now. I mean, FaceTiming. I mean, that used to be something on a sci-fi show in the 1960s. Now it's part of everyday life. It's nothing. 
I mean, just today I was, I was grabbing some coffee and my granddaughter in Florida called me up. Boom. Talk with my daughter, Heather, Wendy, they're, they're all right there. I mean, it was just as if it was normal. But it's life. Amazing how things have changed. And yet we can also see at the same time how, sec- how secular this world is becoming. How far, how, how, how it's going a direction away from God and certainly not towards God. You can almost see an element of despair coming into the world with all that is taking place. We're seeing the rise in hatred, especially the last few years. It is amazing. The spirit of hatred that has come into play from politics, from race. It's went to a whole other level, the division that's there. Politicians using division to stir the hatred. Incredible. We're seeing apostasy like never before. We're seeing things take place that it's just astounding. And we're alive and we are witnessing these events every single day. Remember, God is sovereign and He is in control. However, in the current worldview, though, it offers zero hope for what is taking place in the world. With secularism permeating the culture, the prevalent worldview would be that of naturalism. Uh, naturalism. It's just the idea of evolution. That there is no real purpose, that there is no real design, it's just whatever man does. That's it. Well, that certainly offers no hope. So when the world turns ugly, which it is doing, and it always will do, when it pulls away from God, you better believe despair will set in in many lives. Because they look around and see the mess the world is in. And if you just have that worldview of man just left to himself, you have nothing to hope in. Nothing. You can hope in the government of the United States of America? Please. When this government was strong, why was that? It was for one reason. It was a government that started completely depending upon God. Seeking Him. And God honored that. That is no longer the case. The Christian worldview is vastly different from that. That's why I even try and encourage many of the members when I see them down, remember how we approach the world. It's different from those who are lost. That should not be our worldview. See, in our worldview, God is the creator. He has a purpose, He has a design, and He is in control. Not only did He start this thing, like we see in the book of Genesis chapter 1, but He also finishes it. There's nothing happening that God doesn't know about. There's nothing happening that you cannot read in these pages. He's in control. That's why Paul was telling them, well, remember, the church in Thessalonica here, they had a difficult time. They're in an enormous pagan culture. The, the, we know from this epistle here, they were under tremendous pressure. They were under persecution. And Paul says, listen, here's what's going to happen. is comfort one another with these words. This does provide the hope that is needed. And that hope becomes an anchor for our soul. <clears throat> Those around you, when you are at work, what a time that you can be a light in this world. They should see that there is a difference, that you're somebody that does have hope. 
So we certainly can see that things are setting up for the end times. Now, let's get into this. As we talked last week, Paul was dealing with the rapture of the church in chapter 4. And then he comes what happens next in chapter 5. So, and the rapture is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. It's the event we're waiting for. It is imminent. Now, to see what's going to be taking place, can I go to that picture, please? Would you guys up in the sound booth please pull that up? And I don't think I have a point. I need to leave a pointy thing up here is what I need to do. Um, We might not have it. If not, I can walk right through it. It won't be a problem. She said, I don't need to. She said, look on your card. And there's like the squiggly line right there. She said, just tap it over it. I said, oh, really? And now you just tap it over it, and it was done. I was like, well, well, that's pretty neat. The infrastructure is in place. We're the generation that's seen it right before our eyes happen. Do you know how easy it would be? How many, in just a matter of months, that could be in place in the world that you can control, buying and selling. Because at the three and a half year point, that's what the Bible says exactly what's going to happen. The Antichrist will be in power. We'll be able to control who buys and sells. Amazing. Incredible. So we're seeing these events take place. Now, we hold to a pre-tribulation doctrine. Which means we believe that the Bible teaches that the rapture occurs prior to tribulation. Well, why is that? There's three or four positions. There's two of them that really are the same, but they like to distinguish, but there's really no reason to. I think they just get confused at when the last trumpet is and when the vials hit. So there's one that's also called pre-wrath that got popular. But it's really hard to differentiate, although they do it, but it's, it really is semantics, between mid-trib and pre-wrath. Because it's after mid-trib is when the serious wrath hits. And the, and, and the pre-wrath position is that, is that the rapture will take place when the vials start. All right? So there's a pre-tribulation position. There's a mid- or pre-wrath position, that doctrinal position. And then there's a post-trib position. We are pre-trib. So why is that one correct? I'm going to cover this very quickly because there's, there's still several more things I want to get to. All right. Well, first let's look at mid-trib. Um, that is the most, pre-trib is the dominant because we're going to see that's clearly in Scripture. But there are a lot of people who hold to a mid-trib position. And, and so why is that? And again, they believe it's going to happen um, at the halfway point of the tribulation that the church will go through the initial, those seven seals. Here's the problem with that. Here's one reason why that is not possible. We'll look, we're going to look at others, but if we had just this one, that's going to be enough. Now, as we're going to see, the Bible tells us, matter of fact, let me read a verse over here so I can give the context of it. All right, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, it says this, For God hath not appointed us to wrath. That's true. Throughout all of world history, God's people were never under wrath. They've been under God's judgment for different reasons, but not wrath. That's a different level. All right, we are not appointed to wrath. So they say, well, the serious wrath doesn't hit till after three and a half years, so we can go through that, we can go through that portion. Um, <clears throat> however, as we're going through the seals, it talks about it already as wrath. For instance, in verse 16, this is, still, this is still at the very beginning of the tribulation time. This is when the seals are being opened. It says, and, and, and this is the people, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the, on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? 
So the Bible is clear. When they're under those seals, it's wrath. That's what it is. We're not appointed to wrath. We can't be here. All right? Uh, Let me go on. Uh, They point to the resurrection of the witnesses as being a picture of the rapture. That is greatly spiritualizing what's taking place right there. Nowhere does the Bible say that the believers are removed at that time. Nowhere. Matter of fact, what's interesting is, I'm going to get this when I get to the pre-tribulation position. Once you end chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, you no longer see the church till the very end of the book. It's gone. Gone. So, their their proof text comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it deals with at the last trump. Okay? They tie that in with the seventh trumpet of the uh, the seventh trumpet of God's judgment. They say you have the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then then you have the seventh trumpet, which does take place at the three and a half year point. Here's the issue with that. Last means in time or in sequence. And clearly in both, it's just in sequence. It's not the last trumpet of all, of all time. It's the last of those series of judgments is what it is. That's it. There's nothing that points to that being the rapture, being that trumpet from three and a half years. Nothing. It just means last in sequence, last in time. And that one is clearly what, what it means is last in sequence when you get into the book of Revelation, what is that chapter 11 when the seventh one is sounded. As a matter of fact, when the seventh one is sounded, there is nothing mentioned of a rapture. It is signifying Christ being victorious over the kingdoms of this earth, and and then it's getting ready to go into the vials at that point. So that is the argument for mid-tribulation, but we cannot be under wrath. There's nothing that points to the three and a half years in Scripture whatsoever. Then you have post-trib. Those who believe that believers will go through all of it, and some might be given a measure of supernatural protection. Uh, it's just the problem is the Bible just doesn't teach that. Um, so this is the idea that occurs at the very end, which is odd. So we would go up and then we'd come down. It gives no timing for uh, the judgment seat of Christ or the marriage supper of the Lamb. It doesn't allow for it. You can't fit it in. All right? All of a sudden, we're going into the kingdom, yet what we're responsible for in the kingdom is going to be based upon the judgment seat of Christ. But it hasn't happened. We'll say God can make it happen instantaneously. That's not what he says. It's not like a, it's just not a, a poof a thing in our mind that he does it. It's us standing before him in fear and, and what he's, and, 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 and giving an account for what we've done with our works before him. So, they argue that a pre-tribulation rapture, um, has just been brought up in the last 150 years, and they try to argue that it's a new doctrine and therefore should be avoided. One, you can't argue a theological position from silence of Scripture. And that's what that's doing. Is it true what they're saying? There is an element of truth to that, except for this, which is amazing. When I read those who are like, ah, millennials, and I'll get into all that in just a second, and they freely admit that you go back to 1st, 2nd century writings to 3rd century writings, the position that was talked about in regards to future event eschatology was, a, was pre-tribulation, pre-millennial. And then, it, then it's just not talked about. Well, what happened? Well, it's not long after that, well, a few hundred years, we went into something called the Dark Ages. 
Really, and, until it wasn't really until you get into the start of the 20th century, into the 19th century, that the Word of God was readily available. Now people began to study. We began to work through different doctrines. Now people were, for the first time, really looking at eschatology, and then they came to the conclusion, wait, it is premillennial. It is pre-tribulation. Not because some guy stood up and said he had a dream or a vision. That doesn't exist. But because people began to study eschatology in the Word of God. And again, you cannot make a theological position from from a position of silence of Scripture. And the idea of post-trip also goes against the scriptural teaching of an imminent return of Christ. It goes against it. Scripture teaches he can return at any moment. Post-trib makes that impossible. And do you understand why the events of tribulation, is what I mean, would have to take place? Now, pre-tribulation rapture. This view is the one that is based on a literal uh, interpretation of Scripture. And I'll get more into this when I get into our premillennial position, where the church is the church, Israel is Israel. Okay? I'll explain that here in just a minute. Again, the Bible tells us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, the same thing with the church of Philadelphia, Revelation 3, 10. For time's sake, I'm not going to turn there. We are not appointed to wrath. We are not. Keep that in mind. We're not. What happened with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah? Did God remove them? He did. Why? He wasn't appointed to wrath. Noah, his family, removed before the wrath hit. God does the same thing all the time. We are not appointed to wrath. Revelation, again, makes it clear. When those seals hit, wrath is here. That's why. What's one of the reasons why people came to the conclusion the rapture has to take place at the beginning. It also allowed for the other events to take place, such as the judgment seat of Christ, such as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Also, making sense with, according to Zechariah and the book of Revelation, that we are returning with Christ to the earth. Okay? We also see the fact of, in Revelation chapter 4, I'm, I'm going to go there in a minute. I love, if, if you should go back and listen to that message of Revelation chapter 4, one in our thing. It, I think that is, is incredible what we see there. You have 24 elders in the throne room of God. Amazing. So you have have chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 are just packed with letters to local churches. That's all it's about. Chapter 4, it's gone. There's churches in there. You also have an event that takes place, which is interesting, with John, who's given given the revelation where the Lord comes to him and says, Come up hither. Come up hither. It's at the exact same time where you no longer see the church mentioned. And then in the throne room, all of a sudden, we have these 24 elders. My personal viewpoint is that those elders represent us before God. We've been raptured out um, at that time. And if you go into that, I dive much more into it in that message as to why um, I, I, I have that conclusion. But you, you can go back and read that message. That's, I don't have time to dive into that right now. Um, we also have in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 something that takes place before the Antichrist can come in, and that's the removal of the restrainer. All right? Right now, God's Holy Spirit, although He's ever, right now, He indwells us. 
That's us. The very moment you put your faith in Christ, the Bible says God spared and dwelled you and sealed you into the day of redemption. All of a sudden, we are gone. I don't think we understand right now, because it would be hard for us to, because we have nothing to compare it to. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you don't know how good life is until you go through bad times. When you go through bad times, you have something to compare how good it was. All right? So sometimes we have trouble comparing this to, but I don't think we can possibly grasp how much we are restraining evil right now. Think when we're gone. Well, so what's that talking about? What's that talking about in 2 Thessalonians? We're going to get there here, you know, not too long. We're going to be concluding. 1 Thessalonians, go right into 2 Thessalonians. Because we're out of here. We're gone. That speaks to our departure, which would have to be pre-tribulation. Um, again, then as I've already mentioned, Revelation chapter 4 points to that fact. And so, as I've already discussed, after that takes place, seven years of tribulation, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials. The Lord establishes His kingdom. Now, this is where we get into the word pre-millennial. All right? We are pre-millennial. What that means is simple. Millennial means kingdom. Pre is before. What we believe is this, is that Christ Himself prior to the establishment of that kingdom, comes down to the earth. Pre-millennial. Millennial is a thousand years. And that he establishes his kingdom for one thousand years. So we believe in a literal return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish then a kingdom. That is the pre-millennial position. There's also a position called post-millennial. Um, so, and, and amillennial. Let me, let me cover post-millennial very quickly. Post-millennial, believe it or not, used to be the prominent belief. Um, well, about equal with amillennialism. They're, they're about equal. It was the belief that through the preaching of the gospel in the world, that it would usher in Christ's kingdom. That the world would convert, if you will. And so, well, by the end of the 19th century people began to realize that's not going to happen. And as we went into the 20th century, and by the time you conclude World War II, you would have, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that believed it. One, we just came through two world wars. People saw the direction of the world was going away from God, not towards God. And there was another problem that started taking place into the 19th century that's still true to this day, unlike any other time in world history, with the possible exception of pre-flood. The explosion of the world's population. The explosion of the world's population, all of a sudden, you had, you had the population was exceeding the amount of converts to Christianity, which was also negating the belief of a post-millennial belief. People began to understand, there's no way this can be true. And so it sort of went by the wayside. I have never met in my lifetime anybody who, I'm sure they exist, but I have never met somebody who holds to a post-millennial view. Okay. Now, this next one, a lot of people believe. It's called amillennialism. Ah means it's, it's a negative, like amused, not to think. It means no kingdom. No physical kingdom. So, we have to go back in world history. Clearly, in first century writings, second century writings, it was, it was a pre-millennial. The writings all pointed to the belief of Christ returning and establishing a kingdom, just like the Bible teaches. Now, we come up to a man in, in, in church history who certainly wasn't saved, a man named Origen. He is the father of who corrupted scriptures and everything else. He greatly spiritualized all of the Bible. 
That's what he was known for. He was, a, he was aesthetic. He castrated himself. He wouldn't sleep on a bed. And, and people followed this guy. It's shocking. All right? Well, he, 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 he spiritualized a significant portion of the Word of God, especially the book of Revelation. What he did with the book of Revelation is what laid the foundation for the view of amillennial to come into existence. Because in order to believe in amillennial position, you have to spiritualize Revelation. You have no choice. We're going to see why, because we're going to read the verses where it directly says Christ will establish a kingdom for a thousand years. So, it was, the belief was there because of him, but then it really took off. We've got to fast forward just a little bit through, jump up another, I can't remember what it is, I think it's about 150 years, to a man named Augustine. All right? Augustine, we, we, almost, we call him a lot of times the father of corrupt theology. So you come to Augustine. Augustine wrote a very popular book, it's, you can still read it today, called The City of God. He wrote a lot of stuff. And, and within there, he was basically putting it into a systematic format, the belief of amillennialism. So what did that mean? It was the belief of this, which the Catholic Church grabbed a hold of. Most of your Protestant churches still hold to this day as well. It is the belief that the church is the kingdom. That there, isn't, there is no, ah, millennial, there is no literal, physical kingdom. That that was spiritual. That what really is the kingdom is the church right now. That we are the kingdom. And so what they do is, in order to make that take place, though, you've got to think of the ramifications of such a belief. They had to do away with Israel entirely. They, they, they had to teach that all the promises that were to Israel now go to the church. It was along these lines, by the way, that we were the kingdom, that the Catholic Church used to justify their massacres. But the Bible never taught it. And so, you, and even the reformers held to an amillennial position. You want to know why? Because John Calvin and his institutes, when you go through it, if you studied it out, and I covered it in Calvinism, frankly, John Calvin was a, was a student of, I mean, they lived in different time zones, but the man that he clearly had the most influence on his life from a theological position was one man, and that was Augustine. His institutes were almost commentaries in Augustine's writings. And so the reformers adapted an amillennial position. Most of them were used to that from the Catholic doctrine because they came out of the Catholic Church. The ones who weren't were the Baptists still of that day. Of which we're given, we are given the name Baptist by the Catholic Church because we immersed and, and if one other people got converted, we rebaptized them, they said. No, they just got sprinkled and never had a baptism anyhow because there's believer's baptism in Scripture. And so amillennium is the view that the kingdom is the church, that there is no is no literal view. But again, you have to spiritualize Scripture for that to take place. The fact is, the church is the church, and Israel is Israel. During that seven years, you want to know what takes place? The Bible describes in detail. Israel's eyes are open to who Christ really is. Their Messiah. That's why that kingdom is established for Israel, because of the promises that God made. A literal kingdom. This is why we believe it, because... It's the only position you can come to if you believe and interpret the Bible grammatically, historically, and literally, which is how you interpret the Bible, unless it tells you to do otherwise. All right? It's the only position you come to. Watch. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. Christ has returned. 19. 
the amazing return of Christ at that seventh uh, vial takes place. So Christ has just returned to the earth. Chapter 20 now. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil. And Satan bound him. How many years? A thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And, and after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God, and, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received in mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. If you simply read the Bible, no conclusion you come to? A premillennial position. To be an amillennialist, you have to spiritualize all of that. It doesn't tell you to. John is describing what's going to take place. We are the church, we're not Israel. That's what we are. When we go to Daniel chapter 9, which I'm not going to, I'll conclude right there. When you go to Daniel chapter 9, which is one of my favorite chapters when it comes to eschatology because of the timing of all of it is incredible. When he was talking about about the, the, the uh, what's the wording it uses? The, basically, the, the killing of the Messiah. I mean, he nails it. Coming into, coming into Daniel's last week there. We are in a parenthesis right now before that last week, that was last seven years hit. What's amazing is when you figure out Daniel's time frame of what the Lord gave him there is just incredible. I mean, everything about the Bible is. It has an answer for everything. But it nails it to the year that Christ was crucified. But then after that is the last seven years before Christ returns with his kingdom. So right now, we're in a parenthesis. We're in a pause, if you will, right now in this time of grace, in, the, in, in this time of, of local churches. That moment changes when that rapture takes place. God's timetable starts again. The last week, that, that last, Daniel's 70th week, excuse me, takes place. It was at the end of 69 times 7, you figure that out, you go from the time he starts it, that you, you get the very year Christ was crucified. But then the 70th week, that's that seven years of tribulation right there. That will start when that rapture takes place. That's when that's going to begin with. And you, you, can, get, you can read that in Daniel chapter 9, we don't have to go there. But these are things that, that we certainly do need to know. Now let me finish with this. As he made the contrast between believers and unbelievers... As he goes into chapter 5, what we're going to see, he's going to say they, them, themselves, talking to unbelievers, they are going to be under wrath. That's not something you want to go through. Jesus Christ said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes from the Father but by me. So if you were to die right now, where would you go? Or if the rapture was to happen right now, would you be one of those caught up? To meet the Lord in the air, or you not have a clue. Now listen to me. I showed you that judgment day to come. One day you're going to die, the Bible says. Hebrews 9, 27. You'll stand before God in judgment. He will judge you. And I have news. You're not going to say a word there. You're not, you're, you're not even going to give a defense because there's no defense to give. He is simply going to show you when you broke his law. That's what's going to take place. He's going to show you why you're guilty. And 100% of those who are guilty are cast into a lake of fire. But God has made a way to escape that because we're all guilty. 
And that was when he sent his son, when God became a man 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ. He walked on this earth as a man. He lived the perfect life. Please don't miss this. He lived the perfect life for you. When he went to the cross, an amazing transaction took place. God the Father placed upon him the sin of us all. He judged him for your sin. Christ defeated the wages of sin. He defeated death and rose again from the dead on the third day. Not only did he take your sin, but then he can give you his perfect life, his righteousness. That's how you escape judgment, is by Christ alone. By you seeing you are a sinner condemned before God, but that Jesus Christ is the answer, that he died for you, and you come to him in repentance and faith, and he will save you. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now let me ask this. If you're here right now, you say, Pastor McGovern, I just heard you as you were finishing. I don't know for certain that heaven is my home. I don't know where I would go when I die. I'm not sure if the rapture happened right now that I'd be gone. Please, I need you to pray for me. I'm not certain I've truly been converted. I don't know heaven is my home. Please pray for me. Would you just put your hand up where I can see it and then put it back down? Anybody here liked it all? Just slide your hand up. I, I see some small children. Anybody else? If you did put it up, I missed it. Yes, sir. I see that hand. All right. And we talked. It is all about him. It's that decision to repent and place your faith in Christ. Just like we talked about. Have you seen what Christ did for you? How he took your place in judgment. You think when I gave those sheets of all your sin, Christ's righteousness, he died to take your place. If you'll come to him in faith right now, he will save you. You repent of whatever else it is you're trusting in. And you place your faith in Christ. If that's something you'd like to do, even right now, it's something you can do. If you say, Pastor, yes, that's something I even want to do right now. I think I'm ready for this. You just nod your head for me with an affirmation of a yes. And I'll know it's something you want to do. If not, I'll just continue praying for you. I'll be praying for you. If you want to talk after, we'll talk after again. Anybody else? Say, Pastor, please. All right, Christian. I'm just thankful for truth of the Word of God. Isn't it amazing when you have God's Spirit indwelling within you, how He sort of illuminates? You can see it. Maybe you have something you need to come and pray about tonight. Maybe there's a pressing need... Uh, um, or a person on your mind, why don't you come and pray? Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. Lord, I do thank you for the one who raised his hand. Lord, I do pray for his salvation. Please work. I pray for that conviction and that drawing, Lord. Lord, I love you. I pray to ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Turn to page 480. If you need to come and pray here this evening, you come and pray.